0: And they went to Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Are you come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were amazed and questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And when they came out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew and with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and they told him of her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And in the evening when the sun set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and they that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and did not allow the devils to speak, because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up before daybreak, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues and throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, saying unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, just go thy way, show thyself to a priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them but he went out and he began to publish it much and a blaze abroad the matter insomuch that jesus could no more openly enter into the city but was without desert places and they came to him from every quarter amen so mark is moving
1: very quickly Now at this point and I am going to attempt this morning to move as quickly as He does I told somebody I'd be preaching through so many verses This morning and the reply was can you do that and I think that's a admirable reply based on my own preaching uh, Abilities and perhaps uh, pace that I've set with most of my preaching that being said We're not going to look at all there is to look at in these verses this morning because there is much. We are often so familiar with these texts that the way that we read them, if you are going through the Gospels and you're reading through the Gospels is you'll read through them and you'll think, okay, demon possessed, healed, Jesus teaches at synagogue, man, leper, healed, moving on. And we won't sit at all and reflect about how impressive The things are that we read. Imagine you're a Roman citizen. You know, I believe this book was written by Mark, John Mark, at the behest of Peter, whatever Peter had told him to write, whether it was through his preaching or whether it was through sit down. Here's what you need to write, Mark. Mark is recording essentially what Peter has said about his time with Jesus and and is doing so for the edification of a church. But imagine that church, and perhaps you have the memory to remember the first time you heard of these things. Imagine you're a first century Roman in the city of Rome, Gentile Jew, and you hear of this person. The description of this man is something altogether unique. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Messiah. He is... uh, the one who, when baptized, the Holy Spirit comes in a, in a visible representation and rests upon him. And a, a voice from heaven cries out, this is my beloved son. What we read so far about Jesus is that this great man, John, in the wilderness of Judea, who had many followers, says that of his greatness, I can't even touch. Meaning of Jesus' greatness, I can't Me, who all these people have been following, I can't touch him. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, his sandals. And now we've read these things that Mark has said about Jesus, and now we come to the man himself and to his life and to his ministry. And if we're not careful, we're going to sit there, you're going to sit there, and you're going to say, I've heard it all before boy, we need to hear the word of God again and again and again and again and again. You realize that when we are out in this world, the repetition of not truths, but a narrative that is contrary to the word of God is repeating over and over and over again on your news cycles, on your social media As you drive your car down the street, what you will see represented in this world so often is a contradictory claim to the Word of God. And so when we come here and you think, okay, pastor's going to preach through Mark. I know what it says about Jesus preaching and his teaching and his miracles. And I want you to come today as if you don't know. Do you know? Do you know all there is to know about your Lord John said at the end of his epistle, if I were to write everything there is to know about him, not even the heavens could contain it. There would not be enough material in this world to contain all there is that we ought to know about this person, Jesus Christ. And so even as we're reading these historical facts about this person, we're really getting to know a person, aren't we? Is there an exhaustion of Jesus? In your mind, can you exhaust the person of Christ? You cannot. And so I say this to to you this morning so that you will humble yourself before the word of God and rejoice that you have the word of God to hear. We can become less than thankful week to week when we come to church. And you sit there in the pews and I'm you as much as you are you because I have the proclivity to come every week and to sit where you are up here. Now that may be extremely disconcerting what I just said to you, but I can come to you and ramble on about the word of God and it not touch me as well. Do you realize that we are blessed To hear from God every week. That's what we are doing when you hear the word of God preached. You are hearing God speak to you. And beloved, it's not merely that God is speaking to you in judgment. That is not why his covenant people gather. He speaks to us in truth. And he speaks to those who have ears to hear. So that we will be hearers and doers of his word that is a great blessing first this morning we see that christ is a teacher rather the definite article is better the teacher with authority verse 21 and 22 they went into capernaum evidently from the calling of the disciples in verses four uh four uh 20 through verse 20, 15 through verse 20, they must have been somewhere near Capernaum when Christ called them. Because this city was located near Bethsaida, which John said was the home of Peter and Andrew. I believe they at this point have moved now to Capernaum and now they're fishing somewhere near Capernaum when Jesus calls them. It was located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was an important Place We know that it was important because it was a center of trade. Probably the fishing trade was the most important trade of the region. But we also know it's important because it had a garrison of Rome there. And it had many tax collectors, as we'll see a few chapters later, when, Paul, when Jesus calls Matthew. And so whenever there is a center of Rome in this region of Palestine... Which is a fairly remote and obscure region in the world at that time. If you know there's a garrison, if you know there are tax collectors there, you know there is a commodities being traded, you know there is a somewhat of a metropolis, although it would have been small still. But this is a place of importance in the surrounding region. And Jesus, throughout his uh, Mark's uh, record, will be coming back to Capernaum here and there, and we need to remember this place. But Jesus went there with a purpose, and Mark records these purposes in rapid succession. And he does so by what we see is the translation by the word immediately. And immediately on the Sabbath, and what transpires from here in a few verses now will transpire on this particular Sabbath day. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue as and was teaching. Now, the synagogues were literally a place of gathering. In fact, we are doing the same thing today. During the exile, most likely, of of Judah, when Babylon had destroyed the temple and taken Judah captive, most historians believe this is when synagogues became sort of a a use for God's people of Israel, Israel, those who were believers, to gather together to worship God, to hear the law read, to have the teachers come and teach the people. And this was a very acceptable uh, alternative for a time to the temple. But it wasn't, in, it wasn't competing also with the temple ministry. There was a synagogue right near the temple in Jerusalem at this time. But there are synagogues scattered throughout Palestine, as we'll see. And one of the, one of the ways that Jesus' ministry is defined is that he went from synagogue to synagogue. It's the same thing we see in uh, Acts with Paul. Paul went from synagogue to synagogue. When he would enter a new town, whether it would be in Palestine or whether it would be in the, the Greco-Roman world, he would go to the synagogues first why because that would be an acceptable place to teach and that's why jesus has come immediately on the sabbath he entered the synagogue as and was teaching now it may shock us that jesus would be invited to teach but jesus is oftentimes in his ministry referred to as a rabbi and we remember that scene when he was 12 years old at the temple and he goes to the temple And who are amazed by Jesus, his knowledge of scripture, but the rabbis, the masters, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who are the, the scribes and masters of the text. They heard Jesus at 12 and knew this boy coming into a man knows much more than his years tell. And so here, Jesus is 30, probably around that age, and he is a master, and he is a teacher, and they recognize that he is a valid teacher, and he is there to teach. But Jesus' teaching has a unique distinction for the time, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. Astonished literally means... uh, what we would call a slap in the face. It was as if, as he was teaching, they were slapped in the face. I hope that sometimes that's how you receive the word of God. With with all truth and sincerity. Sometimes we need to be slapped in the face by it. That's an awakening procedure. Sometimes. Well, and that's what happened. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? For they taught them, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I'm not going to go into all the traditional ways the scribes would teach the people. But the summary here is that the difference lay in the authority of Jesus' teaching. They would be struck with the blow while hearing Christ because of his authority. Not merely the deliverance or the mode or the methods that Jesus used were different, but how he spoke and what he said, he said with authority. He delivered the truth without deliberation. One of the things the rabbis would do is they would deliberate. This line of tradition would say this, and they would go on about this traditional line. Jesus is not deliberating when he is teaching. And in fact, I use the term preaching perhaps interchangeably here with teaching because an authoritative teaching is one that draws out a response. If I believe I'm teaching the truth to you, I desire a response from you to believe that truth, to hear it, to do it. We know that even Gentile philosophers in those days did not always teach with authority. Very often, most often, as we see in Acts chapter 17, The mode of teaching centered around an endless exchange of ideas to be hypothesized and debated over to get at the truth. Jesus' teaching would not impress the science guild of hypothesizing questions, rhetoric skills of asking questions of this tradition or this line of ideas endlessly, so oftentimes we can become intellectually dead by just continuing to ask questions. Paul says it this way, they ask questions, but never come to the knowledge of the truth. And what this should tell us is that there is a truth in the first place. There is a time where with authority, the truth needs to be spoken. You know, one of the, my favorite movie series of all times is Star Wars. And I hate to bring that up with relationship to truth. Because one of the worst lines I think ever recorded is when Obi-Wan Kenobi is correcting young... Anakin Skywalker you guys are saying I'm not really that nerdy I just want you to know with regards to Star Wars but it always struck me as is awful Anakin says something and Obi-Wan says only the dark side deals in absolutes in fact that's an absolute statement only the dark side deals in absolutes There is the reality that because there is a God, there is no escape from absolutes. The question is, who knows it? Who knows what is absolutely true? Man, by virtue of our philosophizing? No. But here we have someone greater than man. Speaking the truth, and we must hear him. And this is the picture that Mark is trying to get across. When they heard him speak with authority, they were shocked. It was like a blow to the face. This man spoke like no one else in those days. And here's why Mark says this. It's because he was unlike anyone else in those days. You see, Mark is trying to teach us of someone who is altogether unique in history. And that's what we need to hear about this man, Jesus. What did he teach? We don't know exactly what he taught in the synagogue, but we do know what he would preach. He already said, Mark already recorded Jesus as going around preaching. The time is fulfilled. The gospel, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is a statement of truth and authority. Now imagine You are a first century Jew or Roman, and you have this man going around saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and here's something for you to do. Repent. Believe the gospel. That's a message with authority. Now, keep that in mind as we go to number two here. Christ's authority over evil spiritual beings. Verses 23 and 28 to 28. And immediately here, notice this movement, this quick movement from Mark. This relates to Jesus' teaching with authority that follows. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Luke calls this same spirit an unclean demon. But this term unclean is important for the context, so keep it in mind. And he cried out, the demon cried out, What have you to do with us? This literally means we have nothing in common. You and your purposes do not comport with us, me, us, and our purposes. The demons were in one accord with their purpose. Here is a demon, an unclean spirit, speaking for the whole. We have nothing in common. And then he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, why does he use his name? There's all sorts of questions about why demons would use Jesus' name here. But in those days, one of the reasons why you would use a name of somebody if you were their enemy was to have power over them. There is a very spiritual idea in those days that by uttering an announcement of your enemy's name... Allowed, You could actually control them. And many expositors believe that the demons, while knowing who Jesus was, will see this great attribute uh, to who Jesus was soon by this uh, demon. But at first we see him call Jesus by his name, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus is already preached in Nazareth, and they rejected him. Aren't you Joseph's son? And they, they wanted him to do some home, some home field miracles for them. Hey, come on, bring it on. We're your home people. We're your home field advantage over here. And Jesus says, you, you, you don't recognize who I am. These demons recognize who Jesus is. And some believe that they're trying to gain mastery over him. And then they say this. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, how do they know who Jesus is? Satan is active in these times. I'm not going to go into all the depth of detail with regards to demonic activity. Mark 3, I plan to say a little bit more about that, but there is demonic activity going on at this moment of time in this region of the world that is not Comparable to other times of history, human history, and and other regions of the world. This is a very interesting and unique time in the history of the world where demonic activity seems to be at its height. And they're aware of Jesus. Remember, Satan, their head, their leader, has already tempted Jesus and failed. Perhaps they know who Jesus is because Satan has said, He's here. This is who he is. I couldn't trip him up. I want you to destroy as many of these souls as you can. I don't know. We don't know. But they knew who Jesus was, and they ascribed to him a title, Holy One. Now, there are Holy Ones described in the Old Testament. Many times, angels, the messengers of God, the prophets are described as Holy Ones of God. But this is singular. Holy One of God. The demons know something about Jesus. And this is why James, when he talks about true faith, he says this is not just something we believe intellectually. You are not a Christian merely because you believe Jesus came from heaven. He's the Holy One of God. He died on the cross. He was raised again. That you know that makes you merely, as Jonathan Edwards says, a demon. Just because you know something about Jesus intellectually does not make you a follower of Jesus. These demons knew it. Faith is not merely intellectual. Jesus rebuked him. Notice that. He cries out, perhaps thinking, I can have mastery over Jesus, And this is what happens, verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. Does he mean your word has no power over me (laughs) here? Of course, he's commanding him to be quiet. Jesus, in this context, is telling many people, be quiet. In John's gospel, he often says, my time is not yet come. Jesus is controlling his own destiny, I believe. This is why he's telling this, these different entities, whether it's human or demons, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now, notice the connection here, because the people notice it. Verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? Now, they just heard this teaching that slapped them in the face. Who knows if the teaching actually caused this demon to expose itself to Jesus? We don't know exactly. They were all amazed. What is this? A new teaching with authority. And this teaching also coincides with what command Jesus gave to this demon. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This kind of authority that Jesus has over demons in a few chapters will be why his enemies are claiming that he's actually in cahoots with them. He's possessed by Beelzebub, the, the great head of the spirits. That's why he can command them. Jesus says, no, if a kingdom set against itself cannot stand. But they're, they're in shock. Who speaks like this? Who has this power? That's what Mark wants us to come to. As we read these things, and Jesus' fame spread so much so, that in third, verse 35, after healing many of sicknesses and casting out many demons, Jesus departs to a desolate place to pray by himself. And the disciples didn't know where Jesus went, and they have this whole host of people, and they're thinking, this is great. The disciples were always many steps behind what Jesus was doing. They think, this is great, we got to go find him. And they go find him, and the very words of the text say that when they found him, that, hey, there's a whole host of people. And Jesus said to them, no, it's time for us to move on. (laughs) I'm not gathering to myself a host of people right now. He said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach, verse 38. 39, for there also, for that is why he came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now we see something important here that we need to keep in mind. The unity of Jesus' words, his teaching, and his works. The unity of Jesus' works and his words are absolutely important. To us when we think about the person of Christ, when when we in our faith come to God, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is that we should know he is true and his works are powerful to support his word. What is going on here? Jesus is speaking with power, but he's demonstrating his power. We have to hold these things together. Jesus is not one of those who just speaks with authority and has none. In other words, one of the important aspects of Jesus' works is they come underneath his words and say what he spoke look and see they are true by his works. They are demonstrated to be true by the fact that his words also are are upheld by his works. Both are with authority and both, in fact, teach. What should we be taught by Christ Words, of course, we'll be hearing them all the time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto me, unto the Father, but by me will hear them. We do hear them as those who follow him. But also his works speak, don't they? What does the work of casting out demons by his authority teach us about our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome Our enemy, the devil. You know, we are beset. The Bible says that Satan is as a roaring lion in this world. Now, seeking whom he may devour. And many Christians I've talked to are often in fear and trembling because of the demonic activity that happens in this world. And it happens. When I was coming up in the church, I had a very real fear of demonic activity. I had a real palpable fear about Satan and his work in the world. But beloved, if we are in Christ, we need to see that he has power over these spiritual evil beings. And not only that, but these truths about Christ's teaching ministry and his casting out demons they have a termination in jesus's work on the cross where the scripture says there he overcame all powers all principalities power demonic realm governmental realm you if you are in christ have his protection against these spiritually demonic beings. Powerful beings as they are. We need to see in these texts that this same authoritative Christ that could say this at that time in Palestine is at the right hand of God having defeated the devil. John says in chapter 2 of his first epistle, He came here to defeat the works of the devil. Oh, you know, Satan, and and he has his methods and his means out there, but we can have the equipment, we do have the equipment, at our disposal to overcome Satan. You see, I think so often we are so bound up with this world and the things of this world that we don't believe what we've actually be, we don't know what we've actually been delivered from is a better way to put it here is christ our deliverer showing that he has the power both in his words and in his works to deliver his people from evil beings we're in reformation perhaps mode i am in my mind a mighty fortress is our god that song is was written by martin luther The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. We don't tremble for him. Why? Because of God's man, he says. Not because of us, but because of Christ. We tremble not for him. Jesus' authority as teacher and preacher and his authority over evil and its effects in the world are evidence that he is the Messiah and he is Lord. And this should be encouraging to our faith as we go into this world where there is evil. Our neighbors are beset by evil. Our co-workers, our family are beset by evil. Both lies and by evil beings in this world. Satan is in this world, continuing to do evil, continuing to try to bind, blind the minds of the unbelievers in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So what is our hope for them? What is our hope for this, this life we have, this ministry of the gospel? Well, when John the Baptist is in doubt regarding Jesus, here's what Jesus says. Go and tell John, Matthew eleven four 4 through 6, what you hear and see The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We have this record so that we will be encouraged now that Jesus has all truth in himself, his words are true, and his works are powerful over evil. But before the end of the chapter, Mark records Christ's authority, not just over evil beings, but over sin's curse. And that's important for us, too, redemptively. Third, Christ's authority to overcome the curse of sin in nature. Verse 29 through 34, and then I'll read verse 40 through 42. But we need to remember as we come to these things that in the very beginning, God gave Adam a garden to ten. And the world was without sin. It was out trouble. Work was already implemented, by the way. Work is good. But after the fall, what happened? Work would become hard. But something else was introduced. At the end of chapter 3, verse 13, 17 of Genesis, he says, In pain you shall eat of the fruit of the ground. In pain. Part of the curse that sin brought, the curse that God placed on nature, is that we would experience pain and suffering in this world. And don't we know it? And this is a problem. This is a problem because God made everything good. When God made everything, he did not make his creation to inflict pain upon man. And vice versa. And this curse would permeate all of creation. And affect every aspect of life under the sun. This is why the preacher says, life under the sun is vanity. It's all vanity. But we need to understand the important biblical and theological truth that when we come to portions as we'll read here briefly that God is interested in redeeming all of his creation do you ever think about the theological fact that God made man from the dust of the earth and in order to redeem creation God redeems man what causes the curse our sin How will that curse be restored or defeated? Through the redemption of man. And the destruction of everything tainted by sin, including the earth. Jesus' ministry is full of examples when we come to miracles of his power, not merely over that particular ailment. That's what I want us to see. When we come to these gospel records, but of the curse, Jesus is coming to overturn sin in all of its effects. This is why I say if we really want to be climate activists, we will preach against sin in this world. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogues and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, and I'm not going to go on about how Simon Peter had a mother-in-law, and Rome's celibacy idea for their priests and how it's wrong. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul tells the church that I could take on a wife just as Peter has a wife. Evidently, Peter would travel with his wife. I think it's very important that men of God, I don't think it's absolute, but I do think it's important that we have wives. It keeps us from the temptation of sexual things. I'm not going to go into that, though. Uh, his mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Luke says this is a high fever. Luke is a physician. He gives us these details. It was, a high, it was, a, it was threatening her life. And immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Notice his action. This was often the action of Jesus when it came to healing people. Sometimes he would speak, but most often he would perform an action. He would raise them physically. He would do something physically for them. He lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You know, having COVID, you had it recently, Jim. You know what COVID brain is most annoying part of covid for me having it twice already was this fog that you'd have it for weeks it would seem it would just hang with you and hang with this woman is totally better i remember having the flu really bad when i was little and it would take you a week to recover from it it was so bad and she's just up and serving immediately and the fever left her she began to serve them that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and, and he healed many who were sick and various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now go down to verse 40. And a leper. Again, Luke said he was full of leprosy. He may have, been, he may have not had limbs. He may have not been able to see well. He came to him, probably at night, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. In both of these instances, Christ's authority is seen again. And it's not a small thing. Again, I want you to see, this is not... Us here sitting there in the pew today going, merely, Lord, if you will take away my glaucoma. I have glaucoma. If you you will take away my glaucoma. Take away my anxiety. Take away my whatever your ailment is. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray. I think it's biblical to pray, if thy will be done, remove this from me. But I don't think we should come to these texts and we, can, we, we should just say, hey, this is about what I want right now with my physical ailment. When I was in the mainland, my sister told me that if it wasn't for my dad's ailment, my sister, I had not seen much of spiritual life in her into her 30s. Any, any sort of spiritual life, or love for God, or love for God's people, anything. I prayed for her for many years. My dad has a terminal illness. He can't move, walk, talk, can't feed himself. Well, he's weak, physically weak. And she told us, if not for his weakness she does not think she would have come to faith in Christ. And so when you think about your physical weakness and you see these texts and you say, Jesus, you can take this away from me. Yes, he can. Yes, amen. And you may pray for it. I will pray with you. But remember, God has purposes. He's working out in those for good Even while we suffer, he loves us. So I don't want us to come to these texts and say, He did it for her. He did it for him. Why won't He do it for me? Does He love me? That's not the point here. He loves you, He gave His Son for you. What is the point? He has the power to overcome sin's curse with the touch of his hand with a word beloved that is a bigger problem that is a human history that is a god's purpose in all of creation history problem three observations just regards to the leper with regards to the leper jesus's power to restore the leopard illustrates his re- his power to remove sin's curse you see leprosy and even fever have an old testament theological component component oftentimes fevers were viewed as something that god would bring in judgment upon sinners in the old testament I'm not going to go into that because leprosy is easier to see. As we remember in the the Old Testament, especially Leviticus 13 and 14, but oftentimes, very many times, leprosy was used as a means of judgment upon God's people when they walked away from Him. Miriam, when she questions God's appointment of Moses she becomes leprous. Remember that. Many times in the Old Testament. In fact, to the Jew, not only was it considered that you were cursed by God, but you were also an outcast of God's people if you had leprosy. Now this form of leprosy that this man had was probably Hansen's disease, what we call Hansen's disease, one of the earliest known forms of bacteria that we've ever observed was found first in, a, in an antiquated mummy from Egypt. And it would literally numb all of your senses so that this one story is that you could grab onto something, strongly turn it, not even know that you're ripping your flesh off while you're doing that. Which would be why you would end up hand fingerless and toeless and hands and, and you lose limbs. It was an awful... Dig- Disease, And it was likened unto sin, even in the way that it was prescribed for Israel to not only uh, detect if this was really what you had was leprosy, but also cleanse you. The very cleansing rite in Leviticus 14 that had to do with if you had leprosy to show yourself to the priest and to the priest to present you as clean before the congregation of Israel was a guilt offering, a sin offering, and a burnt offering to be brought back into the camp of Israel because when you had leprosy, you were pushed out of the camp was a picture. You were outside of the congregation of the people of God. And to be accepted back in a guilt offering, a sin offering and a burnt offering were all required. And all of this represented something palpable to the people. A leper was a symbol. Of what happens when sin enters the world. And the effect of sin on a leper was so visible that it would deteriorate, it would destroy, it would tear down what otherwise God created good. And so, this healing of a leper, only two lepers are ever healed explicitly, more perhaps were but only two are recorded two instances of lepers are recorded in the new testament one there's a group and here's this man he was ceremonial unclean he was not to be numbered amongst god's people while unclean this picture of sin was devastating not just understand not just the ailment He could not gather together, as the psalmist said, with the assembly of God's people and worship God. He was an outcast. Just as sin cannot enter into the presence of God, and those who are not covered by the blood of Christ will have no part in the blessedness of eternal life. This leper had no part with the people of Israel in the blessings and the promises, the covenant that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is much more than just healing an infirmity. This is a picture of Christ's ability to conquer sin. Notice Jesus' heart here, secondly. The, the text says he moved with pity. Now, there are variants in the Greek manuscript that say Jesus was upset. But even that, being Jesus being upset, we should liken to when Lazarus dies. To see the effects of sin upon God's people was hard for Jesus. I think what we see here, though, is Jesus' love for God's people. His compassion. Notice who he is compassionate towards. One who is represented by sin. (laughs) This man not only was represented by sin, He came to Jesus, which was unlawful for him to do. (laughs) He was supposed to be removed from society. Jesus is in a city at this point. We know that from Luke's narrative. He comes to Jesus, I believe, at night because he tells the man, don't tell anybody that you've come to me. Just go to Moses and go through that proper mode after he cleanses him. Jesus is moved with compassion that goes much more deeply than the restrictions of the law. It goes to the redemption of the sinner, the man, to be brought back into the congregation of God's people. And Jesus has acted. Third, he acted accordingly, meaning he acted in consistency with his heart towards the man. Listen, he touched him. You don't touch a leper. You could could contract leprosy by breathing. Now, they didn't know all the ways, but it was forbidden for them to come within a certain distance of a city. They knew that this was contracted by relative distance to people who had it. In fact, there is a Tradition, a rabbinical tradition, that if you were so many feet upwind or downwind, you could contract this thing. I mean, they had it mapped out. And Jesus, he comes to Jesus. Jesus touches him. He touches the leper. But I want us to recognize, in so doing, Jesus doesn't become leprous. The man becomes clean. The man becomes clean. Beloved, this, this is a picture of sin, our sin, and Christ cleansing us from our sin. This is what Mark is teaching us. He is, he is not merely teaching us that if we have Jesus, we'll have a perfect health. You know what? Death is inevitable unless Christ returns for all of us. What he is teaching us is so that when we get to the end of the book, which, by the way, is only 16 chapters, and we're going quite slowly through it, is when we get there, we see that what he did on that cross is true and Jesus is sufficient to pay for our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we see this. We see a man. Who is altogether unlike. Any other man in history. We see the Messiah. We see the son of God. We see the lamb of God. Who came to take away the sins of the world. And we see that in him is all authority. Just as Jesus said. In heaven and on earth. Beloved. Be encouraged. If he is your Lord, he has this authority for your sake. His true words, his true salvation, his power, he has it, and he has compassion on his people, and it's for your salvation. You come to church this morning to hear the word of God. Let those who have ears to hear here but there's one more application that i want to make and i want to leave you with a simple thought you might say well then all is well and christ is sufficient but i want to remind you that the word of god is a means that we need to be reminded of every week just like you've been reminded of This is the word of God, you've heard it, I hope you leave blessed to hear it, but there is another, what the old theologians used to call, ordinary means of grace, that we, if we leave without hearing the word of God in its full capacity, can leave alone and not come to, and not uh, exercise, and not come to the Lord, practicing this ordinary means of grace, and that's prayer. Jesus says this whole host of people come to him. One Sabbath day, he preaches with power or he's teaching preaching with power. They hear it, he's casting out demons, he's healing Peter's mother-in-law and then this whole host of people, as soon as sundown comes, they bring all their relatives and family members and friends and family and Jesus is healing, casting out demons and at the end of the day, how tired he must have been. I don't know what time he went to sleep but what we read is that he woke up early in the morning and he removed himself from everybody. And what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. And I have this sneaking suspicion that we have these records of Jesus praying because prayer is that exercise of worship that is unique to true believers. Now you may say, well, false believers pray too. It's true. But if Jesus needs to pray, what do you need? If Jesus who has done all of these works, is the Son of God with power and authority. If he needs to pray, and by that, I don't mean he needs it to feel good about himself. I don't, need, I don't say he needs that in the matter of therapy. But if he goes to prayer because God is to be reverenced and worshipped, and because he depends on his Father in heaven for everything. Jesus is God and man, by the way. How much more do we need prayer? You and I. J.C. Ryle called prayer the pulse of Christianity, and he said, if you don't have it, you may not be alive. If you don't have prayer as a Christian, you don't have Christ, is, is what he meant. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. And in it, he said, if a Christian claims they have faith and then never operates in that basic, fundamental activity of prayer, which is only essentially done by believers, it's an act of faith, then most likely you're a hypocrite and not a Christian. Do we need God less than Jesus? Do we depend on him less than Jesus? Do we not need communion with him as Jesus did? Do we not desire it? Does it not facilitate what God has begun in us, his work of conforming us to Jesus? You see, prayer is worship, prayer is dependence, prayer is thanksgiving, prayer is confession. We need prayer not because we need therapy, because we need God. And knowing this truth about Jesus, his authority, his power, should not lead us away from prayer. It should lead us more into prayer. Martin Luther said, I am so busy that unless I pray at least three hours a day, I can't get anything done. It's it's almost exactly backwards to the way we think about prayer. If if I have time today, I'll pray a little bit here and there. I'll set some time of prayer aside. Perhaps the power of God that we see so mightily upon Christ's ministry, upon great movements of God in history, coupled with persistent, dependent, worshipful prayer, is exactly why, in absence of it, we don't see God at work as powerfully as we desire. Now, I am not going to sit here and say that we will make God do what we want him to do in prayer. I think we come to God because we need him. First and foremost, we need him. We're worshipers of him. We reflect on all the good things he's done for us, and we give him thanks, and we confess our sin before him in prayer, and all of these things are essential for us to do. God will not give his glory to another. If we are not glorifying God in our prayer life, who receives glory? When things go good, who receives glory? Us, us. When things are hard, who gets the blame? Who do we seek for help? Who would he seek to uphold our faith when we are doubting? Do we give up? You see, Christ came not just to save us, not just to return everything to its previous uh, creational good uh, nature, but he came to bring us to God. God. That's why we were created, to commune with God. I can't think of anything greater than that. God will never become boring in eternity. Things will. <laughs> he will never become boring. And that's why Christ came to save. Communion with God and prayer go hand in hand. You say, How, I, I am deficient in it. How can can I be helped? One thing is start praying with other people. It helps. It's not sufficient, but start praying with other people. If you find yourself that you're not praying, join a prayer group. We meet here Wednesday. That's not the only prayer group that can can meet, but we pray here Wednesday night, six o'clock. Join us. It may help you get in a pattern of prayer, and patterns are not wrong. Good patterns are not wrong if we need them. Another way that you can make a pattern of a good prayer life is that you continue in the Word of God because it's always telling us, it's always telling us to come to God in prayer. Read the Psalms, Old Testament, New Testament, Throughout, if you're reading the word of God, if you're in the word of God, it will compel you to pray.